0: Why don't we get into it today, our word, and we'll start with my little introduction, which uh, helps you, wants you even, to cast your mind back to 1994. I was seven in 1994, and on the television, there was an advertising phrase, which was developed um, to help people understand that something uh, was represented on the inside that matched the label on the outside. And this line has made its way into the Oxford Dictionary it's also been featured in a song by Katie Melua, and it's also been used by ex-Prime Minister David Cameron, and uh, to, on multiple occasions to summarise his preferred approach to politics. Can you guess what the phrase is? Does exactly what it says on the tin. Spot on. So the original phrase is from Ron Seal, wood stain, five-year wood stain, that claimed that you'd only need one coat, and then five years would pass without needing another one. And uh, this phrase became um, synonymous with something that is open, that is honest, that delivers exactly what it promises. And as far as I know from my youth, I think I might have seen it once on TV, but that, that, that phrase does exactly what it says on the tin, uh, stuck in my mind. And it's really what we're going to come back to at the end of today, because we want to be disciples of Jesus who do exactly what they say on the tin. We want to be people who reflect Jesus himself. And as you know, we've been going through a culture of discipleship series uh, over the past two terms, and it's been great fun. We've been going through Matthew's gospel from start to finish, and we've been encouraged to respond to the gospel again and again. We've been encouraged to have no fear, to comprehend mountaintop moments, to build kingdom community, and as a church, learn to raise disciples. And if you want to listen to any of those sermons again, You only need to go to our new website in order to do that. But now we've reached the final part, the conclusion of the great gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking ahead to our mission continued series next term. And I've got you three points and a bonus point today, uh, because everyone loves a bonus point. And the first one is this. Celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. The second one is worship King Jesus. And the third one is obey King Jesus and make more disciples. And then we'll get to the bonus point later. But first, let me pray. We prayed this morning in our prayer meeting before the service that God's presence would be among us and that we would meet with him and he would speak and we would respond. So let's do that. Father God, we do. We lift you up. We worship you. I thank you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth in this place. In openness, we can come before you and lift up your praise, which is So worthy of who you are and what you do, God. We just want to thank you again for allowing us to be here. And I pray as I speak, would you speak through me? Would your Holy Spirit descend upon us and fill us again in your name? Amen. Great. So point number one, celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. Um, To give you the context, in case you're new with us this morning, um, I'm going to talk you through Matthew 27. So the chapter before the chapter I'm going to read now. And I'm just going to fly through it and summarize it. might miss some of the details. But you need to know that Jesus is the key figure of the Christian faith. And in the Gospels, we read all about him. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all biographies of him. And up until this point in the story, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been conducting his public ministry, and he's arrived in Jerusalem. And as we find him in Matthew 27, the religious Leaders of the day have got angry with him because he's exposed their hypocrisy and they decide, right, we're going to get this Jesus. He can't claim to be God and get away with it. So they go to him at night, they bind him and they lead him away and they deliver him to Pontius Pilate. And before Pilate, when asked, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus replies, You have said so. Then, when questioned again by the religious leaders, Jesus is silent like a lamb before slaughter. Moving on in the story, there's a moment where Pilate is in front of a crowd of people, all crying out for Jesus' blood, for him to be crucified. And it just so happens that they have the option to let one of the prisoners go free on that particular day. And there's a revolutionary, a man called Barabbas, probably a murderer, also in chains. And Pilate asks, do you want me to set Jesus free or do you want me to set Barabbas free? And the crowd cry, set Barabbas free. We want Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate, he protests. He says, why? What evil has he done? And they shout, let him be crucified. Finally, Pilate washes his hands of Jesus before the crowd and hands him over to them, innocent. Jesus is then taken below into the prison, mocked and put in a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns thrust on his head and a reed stuck in his hand, just so the soldiers can mock him, having been stripped of all his clothing. They say, come on, prophesy, come on. If you are the king of the Jews, prove it, prove it to us. And they beat him up. Next, Jesus is taken up the hill to Golgotha. His cross is carried by Simon of Cyrene, and he staggers along behind, bloodied and bruised. He's finally laid down on the wooden cross, and nails are driven through his hands and his feet before he's elevated up in humiliation outside Jerusalem along a major highway with no clothes on whatsoever. His clothes have been taken, they are being gambled for by the soldiers, fulfilling yet another prophecy. And the chief scribes look at this mess of a man and say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Then Jesus begins to breathe his last steps. As the sin of the world is poured upon him, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness descends upon the land for six hours. The curtain in the temple, four inches thick, rips from top to bottom. The earth shakes, the rocks split, the tombs are opened, and the Roman centurion kneels down and says, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus' body hangs there for a time, a spear shoved through the side of his ribcage to ensure that he is dead. And then a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, says to Pilate, please, let me have Jesus' body. I must bury him in My tomb. Pilate says, yes, take him. And the body is laid in the tomb, laid to rest, and a great stone as heavy as a Volkswagen rolled in front into a groove. The next day, the Pharisees ask the Romans to guard the tomb, and Pilate says, go. Sure, make it as secure as you can. They're scared. They're worried. They're concerned that this Jesus figure might well fulfill what he promised, that he would be raised from the dead three days later after being crucified. They put a Roman seal on it, marking the punishment of death for anyone who interferes with it. And that's when we reach chapter 28. In chapter 28, verses 1 to 7, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at a tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. I have told you. Jesus' resurrection is recorded, as I say, in all four Gospels, and in Matthew's we get this fantastic description. Faithful women, followers of Jesus, go to see the tomb, having heard what Jesus has said, would happen, would come about. And then the greatest moment in human history takes place. The earthquakes and the angel rolls back the stone, and the empty tomb is revealed. The battle hardened sturdy soldiers. Well, they just shake and pass out in the presence of an angel. Whereas the women remain steadfast. Then there's confirmation of all they had hoped for. It comes straight from the angel's mouth. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And that is the most mind-blowing moment. When I read it, I could not get away from the fact that this moment in history, when the stone is rolled away and the tomb is completely empty is worth getting excited about. And that's what my point is really about. It simply is that real followers of King Jesus get excited about the fact that he is resurrected from the dead and he is alive. Hooray! (laughs) And they don't just believe it. Followers of Jesus don't just believe it and they don't just say they believe it. They celebrate it. It is on this event that the entire Christian faith is founded. It either falls or stands on this moment, but... It is so easy to forget. It is so easy to forget this truth. Almost too easy to become distracted by the world and all it offers and all its busyness that is going on. I don't know about you, but the first thing I think most mornings is not, oh, Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and because he's alive, I'm free, and nothing material can ever matter anymore because life's all about glorifying him, and then I don't have to worry about anything else ever. That's not the first thought that goes through my head. My first thought is often, where is the coffee? That is, where did I leave it? That is the, the thing. But I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if that's not the first thing that goes through your head, but I am drawing your attention to the fact that actually at the beginning of every day, we can remember this moment and go, right, I can stand on the truth. For the moment my head lifts off the pillow, I'm going to get on with this day knowing that Jesus is alive and he's resurrected from the dead. We must remember that the resurrection changes everything, not just on Sundays, but every day. And for anyone who's not a Christian here today, you may not understand how Jesus raising himself from the dead and being raised from the dead can affect your day. Well, we'll get into that a little bit later on. But as followers of Jesus, we must avoid being deceived by doubts. We must avoid being deceived by people attacking the credibility of the resurrection story because there are so many people who have analyzed this story and all the available evidence, both from inside the Bible and from outside sources, who still declare that the resurrection is a historical event. Let me read you the words of Lord Darling, a historical member of the House of Lords, very intelligent man, far more intelligent than I will ever be, I imagine. He says this, having considered the evidence. He says, In its favor, as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. He is among many, many others, many professors, many academics who would use a science called textual criticism to weigh the evidence for historical events, who would say it is true, it has happened. The cross is mentioned in Acts about three times. The resurrection is mentioned 11 times. There's even a bias there from our biblical authors, such as Paul, who show that there is a very significant moment that they're not willing to let people forget, even as they continue the story into the book of Acts. And we must remember it daily. We have to embrace the event so we can embrace the results of this indisputable fact. And that should then motivate us to go and tell others about it. It's got to change us first if it's going to be obvious to others that it's true. And for you, that might mean sticking a poster on the back of your loo door. It might mean reciting it when you get up. But if we forget, if we doubt, or if we simply stop believing that Jesus the King is resurrected from the dead, then we face the very death of our faith. Jesus is alive. Praise God. Everything we do in discipleship, in mission, works out from that moment, from that foundational moment in history. And so therefore, let's celebrate it. Let's get excited about it. And that is point one. Going through Matthew 28, there's a short section that I just need to explain to you before we go on to point number two. And it's an excerpt about a story that's concocted by the Roman soldiers and the the chief priests in order to try and deceive the Jews, and it still does to this day. And they propagate in this text uh, a lie that the disciples stole the body. Now, this lie doesn't make any sense whatsoever, so we'll quickly debunk it. Because not only had the disciples of Jesus just seen their Messiah killed and, uh, and, and crucified there on the cross, but they were despondent and fearful for their own lives. They ran away. And not only that, but they would have had to have moved a fiercely heavy stone without any interference from the soldiers guarding the tomb in order to get Jesus out. And these aren't any soldiers. These are battle-hardened centurions. You do not mess with a centurion in the first century. So this lie that the disciples went and stole the body has to be dismissed right off. And Matthew does this in his gospel. He renounces it as a lie to, rouse, um, to try and deceive people, even to this day. Which brings us on to point two, because what do the disciples do when they encounter the resurrected King Jesus? Well... Immediately after he's resurrected from the dead, he's appearing in physical form to people, and they begin to worship him. In verses 8 to 10 of chapter 28, the first people that meet Jesus are the two Marys. It reads like this. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, because that's the first thing you say when you're resurrected. They came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The women clasp the nail scarred feet of Jesus and they worship him. They fall face down and praise him. That's their first response to a resurrected Jesus. And an interesting thing to note is that Jesus doesn't deny this. He doesn't try and stop them and say, no, no, I'm not really him or, or, or no, I'm not really God. Get up, get up, get up. He just embraces it. He embraces them. He embraces their worship in the recognition of his deity. Later in the same chapter, there's some more worship going on when the, disciples, the other disciples meet Jesus in verse 16 to 17. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, the disciples must have been so relieved to have seen Jesus. And it appears that the majority fall at his feet. However, the text does say, but some doubted. Who, how, or why some of them doubted, we don't know. But some writers on this passage speculate that it could have been some additional disciples rather than the 11 who'd also come on the journey. But it highlighted in my mind something that Tim was talking about last week that it goes to show that even those who claim to follow Jesus, when challenged, could come to doubt, even when the evidence is right in front of their eyes. And as Tim warned us, this is an important fact because we must make sure our relationship with Jesus is personal. We must make sure that it is genuine before we claim to be a follower of King Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this morning or you don't know whether you've got a genuine relationship with Jesus, then I'd love to talk to you at the end about it because it is so imperative that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, having put your faith in Him, if you are to receive your salvation and not face hell. So you can see me after if that is you. But it appears that some did doubt, even when Jesus was right in front of their eyes. The other disciples, however, get down and worship quite rightfully. There's no doubt for them they have that relationship with Jesus they know because they know because they know that it is him they've touched him they've spoken to him they've listened to him and then Jesus cuts to the chase pretty quickly confirming that he is God to this group of believers it says then Jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me only our god has all authority in heaven and on earth jesus is the king of the universe. In the heavens, he is Lord. He's flung stars into space at creation. His words are timeless. His position is fixed. He sustains everything, every breath that you take, and he gives the angels their orders. And humanly, you can't understand him. I meet people who want to know more about God, but then they want to understand every inch of him, and I'm just thinking, do you know what? You're just never going to do that. You need to accept that you're not God and that he is And that's where you've got to get to. Not to mention that Jesus has authority down here on earth. He's proved it throughout the Gospels, if you've ever read them, in miracles, in healings, in teachings. He says, get up and walk to a paralytic. He says, stretch out your hand to someone whose hand is withered and it's made new. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, to those that wish to follow him. If you wish to follow him you must know that it's only through Jesus that you can come to the Father. Jesus cast out demons. He fed thousands, and as we've already noted, he rose from the dead. Not only that, but he raised Lazarus from the dead as well, showing that he has all authority over death itself. But the sad facts of our nation and many nations around the world is that not everyone wants to do this. Not everyone wants to worship King Jesus. And people in our world are holding up all sorts of other things to be their king or their queen. And the harsh reality is that not many people really want to know that Jesus should be on the throne of their life. For some, their king or queen is money, or it's power, or it's their sexual preference, or it's public opinion. Whatever Twitter says goes. Whatever the most people are saying, I'm going to follow that and do what they're doing. For some people, the king of their life has become something other than Jesus, perhaps a celebrity, footballer, a particular person in their life. Their king or queen becomes the one they worship, and it's not hard to find out who people worship or what they worship because you just follow two things. Follow where their time goes and follow where their money goes. If their time is spent on something other than Jesus, well, then you know that that is the thing that they are holding up in worship. And if their money goes that way as well, it's pretty obvious. There are two indicators, not the only two, of course, but two of the big ones. And it's something that I find that I have to be analytical about this for myself as well, because you have to think about your quiet time, and your devotional time, um, very carefully, I find, because I, I discover that you can become functional very, very quickly. And this is really a personal story from just even the last few months. The, the busyness of life for me, uh, with all the things that happened in, in this year in particular, have started to shake things uh, in, my, in my consciousness around time and time spent with God. And I realized that particularly with, uh, with all sorts of uh, events such as the wedding and becoming 30 and all these kind of things that are happening in my life, things, things started to Dislodged Jesus as king. Things started to become slightly more important, and I found the scripture that broke this lie for me, that broke this apart, and it was the first commandment: love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And I was analytical about myself because I looked at my heart and my mind and my soul and my strength, and I thought, you know what? For the first few months of this year, I think I gave God some of my heart and some of my mind and some of my soul. I don't think all of myself was in it. And that's the lie we have to debunk, that actually we can't be all in. <laughs> we have to be all in with Jesus. That's the point I'm trying to make. But it, it's so hard sometimes to, to acknowledge that and, and even humble yourself to a point where you have to go, oh, right, wow, Jesus hasn't been king in my life. I need to address that balance and put him back where he should be. And although it's easy to say Jesus is my king, it's actually a full-time job to keep him as king of your life, as i am discovered and continue to discover. So we need to keep Jesus in his rightful place as king and worship him. And that's point number two, worship King Jesus. So there's no holding back from our gospel author. As he gets right to the thick of it in the final few verses, Matthew is really narrowing down to the end of his gospel here. And though worshiping Jesus is a top priority for his disciples, it's no substitute for mission. In fact, celebrating the resurrection of jesus and worshiping him regularly as king should motivate us to an action to go and tell others which he brings to us to which brings us to point number three which is obey king jesus and make more disciples one of my favorite uh, missionaries is called hudson taylor does anyone else like hudson taylor good yeah he's one of my favorites i read his biography i want to learn more about him And he was a missionary who went to China and uh, went to bring the gospel to inland China. And I just want to bring you a bit of um, um, his story from when he was in the UK before he went there. And so um, I'm going to take you back to the 25th of June, 1865, a Sunday morning that found Taylor in a church in Brighton. And he wrote this. He says, as the full congregation rose to sing the last hymn, Taylor looked around Pew upon pew of prosperous bearded merchants, shopkeepers, visitors, demure wives in bonnets and crinolines, scrubbed children, trained to hide their impatience, the atmosphere of smug piety sickened him. He seized his hat and left, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out onto the sands alone in great spiritual agony." That's Hudson Taylor commenting on his experience that morning in a church. But the the point is that Jesus loves it when we celebrate his resurrection. He loves it when we worship him, but he loves it even more when we obey him. In verses 19 to 20 of chapter 28, Jesus declares the most important task that he has prepared for us to do. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Therefore, you go. It's the instruction. It's the command. I added the you, as you might have guessed. But it's therefore go to your school, to your workplace, to your exercise class, to your marathon, your market, your local bridge club, your train station, or even Cafe Nero, Go with a passion to make Jesus known. And it's important for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus, to walk around with an awareness of this. I'm going to give you one of my uh, top tips for uh, continuing to be aware of it as you you go along. And that is look for the cross. People often wear a cross around their neck. And uh, sometimes they know what it's all about and can explain it to you. But actually one of the best questions you can ask as a follower of Jesus is, or one of the best things you can say, sorry, is, oh, I really like your necklace. What does it mean? And see what they say. And I was up in Surbiton just the other day getting my suit sorted out with my mate Craig, and he sat in a barber's chair, and I sat opposite following him, uh, watching him. And a lady was there, and she had a necklace. And I said, oh, I like your necklace. And she, she kind of kissed it, and I went, what does it mean? And she started to tell me about how she'd gone to church back home and gave me a big old story about about her church and I said yeah but do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Is that what it's about? And she sort of didn't understand what I've been talking about and it just dawned on me actually there's probably a lot of people out there who wear a cross who don't actually know what it means. So it might be really helpful to go out there and ask a few people about their necklaces and why they wear it. That's probably the key question I'd advise you to do but to walk around with an awareness of this is really really important that we have been commanded to go. But Don't restrict the gospel simply to your own life. Instead, gain a global perspective on what Jesus is asking us to do. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, not just in all nations. Jesus Christ is the victorious Messiah, so no corner of any nation is exempt from the call to submit to him as king. As you can imagine, or might have even experienced yourself, uh, the enormity of the Great Commission can be intimidating. You might find it a bit scary to think we've got to go all over the world, but we must remember, Jesus is king. He is on the throne, and he has asked her to do it. So once again, let's follow Hudson Taylor's train of thought uh, as he muses on this global perspective. What if he had led a band of willing volunteers to inland China? And in the midst of dangers, difficulties, and trials which would necessarily be connected with such a work, some who are comparatively inexperienced Christians might break down, and bitterly reproach him for having encouraged them to take, undertake an enterprise which they are not equal. And yet, a million a month were dying in that land, China, dying without God. This was burned into my very soul for two or three months. The conflict was intense. I scarcely slept night or day, more than one hour at a time, and I feared I should lose my reason. The personal battle rages on within Hudson-Taylor, before he eventually steps out and gets on a boat to go to China, and he lost sleep over it. And I can't tell you that I lose lots of sleep. I slept really well last night after doing laser tag and the carnival. I went to bed at like 9 o'clock. I was exhausted. I didn't lose sleep over it, but what if we did? What if we lost sleep over this? What if we had it burned into our soul once again that we need to go and make disciples of all nations? And what if we took on that tailor like burden where he just couldn't get away from it? Will we commit ourselves to reaching every town, area, nation, the whole of Europe, just as Taylor did to going out to China? Last train of thought from Hudson Taylor. When he's on the beach, he recalls a passage of Scripture which he had heard before leaving the church in disgust. He exclaimed, "'Why, if we are obeying the Lord, "'the responsibility rests with him, not with us. "'Thou, Lord, thou shalt have the burden.'" All the responsibility lies on thee, Lord Jesus. I surrender. The consequences rest with these. Hudson Taylor reminds us that when we step out in faith, on mission, when we invite someone, when we witness, when we have conversations with someone about him, when we ask about their necklace, Jesus is with us. The consequences of those conversations rest on him. He only asks us to step out in faith and do it. Jesus reassures us in the last part of Matthew that we won't undertake his mission alone. His final words are recorded as these, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know it's significant when Jesus says, behold. Making real disciples is not difficult. It is impossible. So our success relies not on our own strength, but on his All authority belongs to Jesus, which means that Caesar, sin, Satan, none of them have any grounds to resist the power of the gospel of his kingdom as we go from here. None. And so the fight back begins. Will we dislodge Europe's false kings and rulers of public opinion, individualism, and pluralism, and declare the king, Jesus, as the true Lord and Savior, or will we shrink back into the shadows? He invites you to play your part in the kingdom by giving you the same invitation that he gave Matthew all those years ago. Follow me. And that's point three obey King Jesus and make more disciples. Now, I promised you a bonus point, and I will not let you down uh, because I want to conclude with this kind of bonus application point to leave you with. And it's called A Summer of Great Mission. Uh, Oh, no, sorry, A Great Summer of Mission. And uh, I was going to name it Quincy's five top tips for a summer of great mission, but that's a bit of a mouthful. So it's just a great summer of mission, and it's simply just five ways that you might want to apply what we're talking about here to your life. Um, You might take them all, you might leave them all, but I just want to give you the option today uh, and and give you these five kind of ways of thinking through summer, because it's quite easy just to relax and take your foot off the pedal completely when it comes to mission, when the sun's out and you just want to lie on a sunbed. That's that. Here's my first one, get your towel down now. Now, when I went on holiday with my parents, I was really blessed. They'd take me to um, locations where there would be a pool, which was great, and sunshine. And uh, they knew full well that you had to get your towel down first if you wanted to save a sunbed by the pool, because otherwise someone else will come and put their towel there, and then they won't be able to come and sit by the pool. But also, they also knew that everybody knows uh, on holidays, apparently, that uh, if you put your towel down, you can't. If you see someone else's towel on a sunbed, you're not allowed to move it. It's just an un- unwritten rule. It's just there that you're just not allowed to move it. And uh, the way this relates to, to witnessing and mission is that if you go out this summer and you witness to someone, you lay a foundation, you lay a kind of platform to then go to the next step. If you invite someone to dinner over the summer holidays... But then forget to set a date or a time or a place. You've always got that to go back to. I'll give you the example from my own life. There's a lady called Jackie who lives four doors down from me, 13, number 13, she lives in. And whenever we see each other, when I'm locking up the car or she's going to school uh, with her son, I'll say, Oh, I said to her once, Oh, we should have dinner. Like, you should just come around, Sophie and I will host you. And you know what? She just hasn't forgotten. It's great. Every time I see her, she's like, oh, we should do dinner. I'm like, oh, yes, we definitely should. And one day I'm going to surprise her and actually do it. <laughs> so that's what I've done. I've kind of put my towel down. I've kind of laid it down. And you can't move it now. I've put the invitation out there. It's something to refer back to. That's my point. You can always go back to an invitation once you've made it. Um, you can always say, oh, do you remember I invited you? You should come. How about this date? Get your towel down now. Get your towel down in the summer so that if you get to it by the autumn, you can invite them again and then move on to the next step. So that's the first one. Second one, sunglasses are your friend this summer. Most people find it a bit intimidating if you talk to them eye to eye and eyeball them about Jesus. Um, But in the summer, they've got this shiny shield of plastic in front of their eyes, which is fantastic because it means that more people are open to talking. So yesterday, I talked to a guy called Tony, who has the same birthday as me and Susie, uh, for like 10 minutes while he was watching the puppets or watching his daughter watch the puppets. And uh, he was happy to talk to me. He had sunglasses on. I didn't actually at the time, but I I had them on my head. And he just talked and talked and talked. I think it was the. I think he was all right because he was behind the sunglasses. So sunglasses are your friend this summer. Try asking someone what they know about Jesus if they've got sunglasses on. That would be my advice to you, (laughs) because they won't be as nervous as as usual, and they won't be as scared of you um, if you are looking at them through your sunglasses as well. The third one is this: um, barbecues are a winner. Really easy win. For you this summer is to have a barbecue or a braai and invite people around for to, to eat some of that just make sure it's properly cooked and uh, if you're nervous I, I know it's a bit of it, some people it's a bit of a burden it's a bit of an effort to get neighbors around team up with someone else from king's church who's better at it than you are uh invite them around and Say, look, i'm running this barbecue I, I could really do with your help even if you just stand there and flip burgers some reason, people are drawn to the person at the barbecue. Like, it's the smokiest, smelliest place, but everyone wants to talk to the barbecue person. So get your, your champion person who you think, they'll talk about Jesus, I'm definitely putting them on the barbecue, and invite your neighbors around for that. That's number three. Number four is go and let know. If you're privileged uh, to go on a, a, honey, um, a holiday overseas, then you will be def- definitely be going on a plane if you're going a really, really long distance. And that gives you, well, say you're going to Turkey, that gives you about four hours sitting next to someone that you potentially don't know. And the, my, my line for you on this one is to take along the key to the gospel, which is sherbet lemons. Because who doesn't love a sherbet lemon? And you sit in your seat, and you're about to take off, and people's ears pop. So you offer them a sherbet lemon. They might refuse, they might accept, but that is your way of connecting with the person next to you. You don't know where that conversation is going to go, but my encouragement would be take along a Why Jesus booklet, and sherbet lemons, offer sweets to people. That is a really good way to connect with them. And who knows, you could be landing in Istanbul, praying the prayer of salvation just before the tires hit the tarmac. Instant church plant. Brilliant. So that's my fourth one. My fifth one is this, a book by the pool. And this is probably my favorite one because novels are great fun. And um, this summer, uh, I encourage you to get into something other than a novel. Because Christian books, good, solid Christian books, will not only help your discipleship, but they will encourage other people Uh, You can encourage other people once you've read them. Give them away. This is what I'm trying to teach Sophie to do. We can't have a whole flat that is full of books. We have to give some away. And so we're going to try and do that. But get some Christian books. Take them on holiday. Read a chapter a day. You'll help yourself. You'll nourish yourself. You can also give the book away at the end. Also, people are really nosy. So if you take a book with a really provocative title, like the one I'm reading, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus... It's a provocative title. People are, people are like, oh, what are they reading? Oh, they want to... They'll take a look. They might ask you a question about it. Better still, take your Bible out. Get your Bible out. Start reading the Bible by the pool. Oh, they're reading the Bible. Oh, that's weird. Why are they doing that? Do it. They might ask you a question if you're on the bus or by the pool or on the beach. Go for it. Get the book out. So that's it. That's my five top tips uh, for a missional summer. If you want more personal tips or information or just a bit of training, Come and see me for a coffee. Come and buy me an ice cream. Uh, I'll tell you everything I know. But uh, in summary, we've covered the, the four points. Point one was celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. It's the definitive proof that the gospel we actually share is true. It's our trump card. It's our champion piece of evidence. It's the final part to the puzzle. We believe Jesus is alive. We bank on it. And if the resurrection is false, then Christianity is the biggest hoax ever, and we might as well just go home. So, celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. Number two, worship King Jesus. Worshipping Jesus is a joy. I love doing it with you here on a Sunday morning. I love doing it in private. But we join the generations of disciples who stood and sung worship songs to our King. However, worship is only the Kickstarter, it's only the beginning of something greater uh, in our lives in the form of mission. And we can't re- remain face down, sorry, Matt Redman, forever. We've got to get out there and reach the whole world and make disciples. And point three is this, obey King Jesus, make more disciples. If we're real followers of King Jesus, then we'll do what he asks us to do. We will obey him. The same lips that declare, I love you, King Jesus, must also say, I'll do as you command. We must follow his command and go and make disciples of all nations, declaring, that's my king, King Jesus. Now, it's been a wonderful pleasure going through the culture of discipleship with you all this term, but it's up to us to continue the mission over the summer and into the next term. And you can start by following my tips or inviting someone to come to Criss Cross or New Day or Ashburnham. That's how you can get started. But I want you to continue the mission as we head on into the summer. And it may seem mad at this point in time, but please start to pray already for those that you want to see. Join us on Alpha in January 2018. I'm praying for this guy from the laser tag. I said I'm going to email you. I'm going to let you know when we're going to start. It starts in January. Prayer makes all the difference. And finally, we are followers of the true King Jesus. And we need to be those who do exactly what it says on the tin. We must obey our king. Every week in Europe alone, 150,000 people die without Christ. 650,000 a month and 7.8 million a year in Europe alone. So we must decide to be like Hudson Taylor. We must commit ourselves to continuing the mission and making more real disciples of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen.